Each week before I read the scripture, I, I say a prayer that our, our hearts will be focused on what is about to be read and on the, the word that is about to be proclaimed. What is essentially happening when I'm doing that is, is I'm asking that the kingdom of heaven be made known to us, that it come down here among us. And I'm asking that, uh, that all of us uh, enter into a time of repentance, a time of confession, so that we can be made right with God as the word is proclaimed. And I'm asking that the word will serve for us as our daily bread. And so today, rather than praying that prayer uh, just on my own, I would like all of you to join me today in the prayer as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Please stand if you are able for the reading of the word. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out loud with a voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to be sent out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This week has been mostly cloudy, even stormy on some days, but we are still in the season of spring where the sun shines a little bit brighter, and and so I felt it was appropriate for us to do this series called Here Comes the Sun, S-O-N, as we talk about what it means for the Son of Man, the Son of God, to shine in our lives. And it's especially relevant for us during the season of Easter as we contemplate the resurrection and what it means for us. Last week we talked about what uh, the term the Son of Man meant. And we said that this is a, a phrase, a term that Jesus used almost exclusively for himself. He used it over 80 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man. We talked about why that was, and it was a declaration really of his humanity. It was his way of showing us that he was, he was fully human. This week we're going to talk about the Son of God and what that means. And though Jesus used this phrase on occasion, it's not one that he usually used for himself. It was usually, when we hear it, it's, it's, it's mostly used by other people making a declaration of who Jesus is. The disciples used it, his followers used it, but in this passage... It's strange we see evil spirits using it to describe Jesus. When Jesus steps out of the boat and he encounters this man possessed with not just one, but a multitude of demons, the first thing they say to him, they call him the Son of the Most High God. They recognized his power. They recognized that he had authority over them. They recognized that he was from God. So as we consider this, and especially in light of of what we talked about last week, that he was fully human, we have to ask ourselves, well, how was he also fully God? How was he also fully divine? And it is a strange question to ask. Because you can say, well, he was 50% one and 50% the other. But that's not what what fully God and fully man means. Fully God means he was 100% God. Fully man means he was 100% man. So how does that work? How can you have 100% of one thing and still 100% of the other? First of all, God's economy doesn't make sense to us. God's math doesn't always make sense to us. But I want to give you an example that sort of helped me understand it because it's it's an argument that's been going on for hundreds, even thousands of years. The early church uh, struggled with this. And there were theories that, um, that maybe Jesus was half and half, that he was half God but half man, uh, that he had maybe these two different modes within him, and he could use one mode in certain situations and certain modes in another situation. And, and that became, uh, that, that just wasn't scripturally sound. And, uh, and, and I remember, and I may have shared this with you before, this one teacher's, uh, teaching assistant that I had at, at Emory putting it to me in a way that really helped. He said, if you imagine a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you have one slice of bread that is fully peanut butter. It is one slice of bread with all the peanut butter you can possibly spread on it. You have another slice of bread that is fully jelly. It's got all the jelly it can possibly have, 100% jelly. But you put them together and it becomes one sandwich. And not only that, but as you push it together, 
it becomes combined and when you try to pull it apart you can't really you're going to have peanut butter on both sides and jelly on both sides and that's how we can understand that Jesus was fully man and fully God and you can't separate them he was both and that's that's how we we understand his divinity and his humanity at the same time now this was necessary because it was a new thing it was something God had not done before it was something that no other human being in the history of human beings could claim to be fully God and fully human and the reason why God needed to do this new thing was because God was trying to reconcile us he was trying to redeem the world and give us a way to where we were no longer under the curse of sin where our nature could be changed and he could only do that through someone who shared our nature but also shared God's nature and so he sent Jesus Christ and that was a new thing it was something that, that had never been done before. There, there had been uh, hundreds and thousands of years of prophets, law, commandments, teachers, people trying to live righteous, but they all failed. They all fell short. They could sacrifice, they could confess, they could go to the temple, they could keep the law, but if they stumbled at even one point, they were guilty of the whole thing. And that is why it was necessary for God to do a new thing through Jesus Christ. There were other people who came along and tried to become the Messiah, who claimed to be the Messiah and wanted to start a revolution. We even hear about that in Scripture. In the book of Acts in chapter 5, uh, the disciples are being whipped, they're being flogged, they're imprisoned, and they're about to be executed because they're preaching in the name of Jesus. And we see there in that fifth chapter, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So Gamaliel clears the room. He says, okay, y'all want to put these disciples to death. Let, let's, let's talk about this before we do it. Clear the room. I need to talk to y'all one-on-one. And he tells the other Pharisees, the other lawmakers, he, he tells them, uh, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So here was a Pharisee, someone who didn't even believe in Jesus, didn't follow Jesus. But he has the sense to say, listen, we've had a lot of these guys before. We've had a lot of people who were human beings raised up and say that they were from God and that they were going to start a revolution. And it came to nothing. Even though they had hundreds of followers, when they died, it came to nothing. It was from man totally from man, and it failed. But this, if it's from man, it will also fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And we know how the story ends, or really the story begins. Christianity catches fire, and it spreads, and it changes the world. It turns the world upside down. 
And so these words become prophetic when we see that it is a thing of God because Jesus was not just a man. The movement was not just a human movement. It was a divine movement. It was something new that had never been done before. But what's interesting, especially as we look at these, this passage, we see that that scared people. You see, Jesus came with his authority and with his power, and he's casting out demons. And you would think that people would say, oh, this is great. God has come to earth, and, and this power, this authority is here among us. But it didn't. It scared them. They were afraid of change. They had always known this man as the crazy guy that lived among the tombs and cut himself and screamed. And the fact that, that someone could come down with this authority and this power and cast those demons out and make this person whole again, well, that was too much for them. That was too much change. They couldn't accept that. And it's funny how that's part of our nature. So often we don't want to accept change. Now, I'm not a fan of change just for the sake of change. But sometimes, especially when God is trying to exert his power, when God is trying to do a new thing, change is what is required. But still, we resist it because that's what's in our nature. Henry Ford, uh, who had invented the Model T car, uh, he had a production manager in 1912 named uh, William Knudsen. And William Knudsen had been telling Henry Ford the Model T is great, but you could make it better. You could improve it. You could do some new features, some new designs, and, and people, people would like that. And Henry Ford didn't want to hear it. The Model T was his baby. That's what he had done. That's what he was sticking with. He did not want any kind of change made to it. Well, one day, he went on vacation. And while he was gone, William Knudsen had this, this new car built. And when Henry Ford came back and looked at it, he walked around it a few times, looking at it closely. And then he goes over to the driver's side door and he snatches it off. And then he walked around to the passenger door and he did the same. And then he started beating the windows out, beat the windshield out. Needless to say, he was not impressed with the idea of changing the car. William Knudsen went on to be the production manager at General Motors, where they would develop many cars that were very different from the Model T. And Henry Ford was eventually forced to come up with new cars for the sake of competition. General Motors wound up being the number one car manufacturer in America for almost 80 years. Henry Ford changed, but only when he saw that it was necessary. And that's what's in our human nature. We, we resist change until we have to change. When I came here to, to this church, when I came to Buena Vista, a lot of you were very welcome for a change. You were, you were up for a change. And I remember before I came here, there were meetings where the, the superintendents and the bishop and all these you know, wise, experienced pastors would be talking to newer pastors, and they had this one piece of advice that, that all of them said, don't change anything when you go to your church. When you get there, don't change anything. You're just going to make everybody mad. But then several of those people would pull me aside and say, except you, those guys need a change out there. You really need to change. <laughs> and fortunately, when I got here, y'all wanted something different because you realized that the winds of God, when they blow, sometimes they require us to change. Sometimes they require us to set up a sail and to go with them. 
But these people in this country that Jesus was visiting, they were not ready for the change. They were not ready to experience God's authority on earth. They were not ready to experience this new thing. And that's unfortunate because all of us can be changed through the power of Jesus Christ, but it only comes when we are willing to submit to the authority of God. Only when we are willing to submit to the way God is directing us to change. And most people, when they come to Jesus, they have a story of how they were at the end of their rope. They realize their human limits. They realize their, the, the, the limits on the human body, the human spirit, the human mind. And they realize they needed something greater to redeem them. And that's when they came to Jesus as not just the Son of Man, but also the Son of God with this, this higher authority, this higher power. You see, all of us are like, at some point, we are like the man who lived among the tombs. We all live in the shadow of the tombs from the day we are born. And as we grow older, we become more and more mindful of this. We realize how fragile life is. We realize that we are living among the tombs in the shadow of death. But it's a reality from day one. When I was 21 months old, I was in the shadow of the tombs. My life was nearly required of me. Liam, my son, was living in the shadow of the tombs, even as he was in the womb. But God delivered him. That is what it means to be human. We live among the tombs. But thank God we believe in a risen Christ who brings with him the power of resurrection, who brings with him the authority of heaven. And he can walk among us, and, and he can talk to us, and he can speak to us, and he can know our needs just as a son of man would, but he can deliver us from the power of the tomb because he is also the son of God. We talk about the crucifixion, and we talk about his humanity, we talk about how he didn't use any of his divine power. He submitted himself to that execution. That was his role as the Son of Man. But then when we talk about the resurrection, the power that brought him back to life, we recognize that that is what makes him the Son of God. That power from heaven to restore what has been lost. To give birth to what is dead. What I think is fascinating about this passage is that these unclean spirits proclaim, you are the son of the most high God. They recognize it. Why? How did they recognize Jesus? It's because Jesus, as the son of God, was eternal. He had always been. And the fallen angels, the unclean spirits, they were fallen angels. At one time in, heaven, at one time in history, they were in heaven glorifying God, praising God, and praising Jesus Christ. That's why they recognized him. They knew as soon as they saw him, this is the son of the most high God who has authority over us. And Jesus came to earth so that that authority could be made known in our lives as human beings and we could have a share. We've talked lately about how we have a share in him as he has a share in us. He experienced life and death as a human being so that he could have a share in us. He can relate to us, but then through the resurrection, we have a share in him. 
Just as on the cross He took on our sins so that we could take on His righteousness. Just as He washed the disciples' feet and He took on the filth from their feet so they could take on His, his cleanliness. So too do we take on His divinity when we share in His resurrection. In other words, He became a son of man like us. But we become sons and daughters of God, just as he was a son of God, because of the life he offers to us. The Gospel of John has this wonderful prologue. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And as you read that, you go through it, as you get on down to about verse 12, it says, To all who believed him, he gave power to become sons of God. That means we get to share in His divinity. We get to share in His resurrection. We get to share in His authority over death and over evil. And that's why I included the end of this scripture today. If you see in your bulletin, it wasn't originally listed to go all the way to verse 20, but I decided to include it because what I think is really interesting about this, this man who was, had these, these demons cast out of him, he asks if he can go with Jesus, and Jesus tells him no. That hardly ever happens in the Gospels. But he says, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, what I want you to do is go tell others what the Lord has done for you. In other words, you have been given new life. You are no longer living in the shadows of the tomb. Now go and tell and speak that life to others. And it says, when he went and he told them, everyone marveled. So what is our role? First of all, we have to recognize the authority and submit to the divinity of Jesus Christ. For us, we who are born in the shadows of the tomb, the only way that we can escape the shadow of death is by submitting to the power of Jesus Christ the one who gives life. But it doesn't end there. If we share in the life of Jesus, we share in His resurrection, and we share in His divinity just as He shared in our humanity. And that means that we have the power to speak life to others, to offer them freedom in the name of the one who gives us freedom, to offer them hope and the resurrection in the name of the one who gives us resurrection. Go and tell what the Son of God has done for you. Let us pray. Lord, the miraculous claim that Jesus was both the Son of God and the Son of Man is so confusing in ways. But Lord, we understand that what doesn't always make sense to us is part of your plan. And it's a perfect plan, one in which you share in our humanity and we share in your divinity. And because of that, we do have the hope of resurrection. Lord, help us to live as Easter people as people who have been given a new lease on life, and people who have been given eternal life and no longer live in the shadow of the tombs. Lord, give us the words, the heart, 
the authority and the power to speak life unto others in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 174. His name is Wonderful. It's a short one, so again, we're going to sing it through twice. But I invite and encourage you, if you've made a decision of any type today, to come forward and and share that with the congregation. I also want to remind you that the altar is always open for anyone who wishes to come forward and pray. Please stand if you are able. Join us in singing hymn number 174. Thank you.